the bin. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode 97 and I am Scott Gardner and I'm joined as always by my buddies Mike Bailey. Hey! <laughs> and Paul Spataro. Hello. Hello. And we're going to jump right on into this baby because we are three exhausted podcasters. So <laughs> we're going to try our best to make this a nice, succinct episode tonight. So uh, we're going to start right off with uh, the Marvel. And that's you, Mike. Well, yes, it is. And I'm going to take us back to the dim days of 1996. The beginning of 1996, Captain America was written by Mark Wade and drawn by Ron Garney, and everyone thought it was freaking awesome. Why? Because it was freaking awesome. Brought Cap back from kind of, and I hate to say this, the malaise of the, the late Mark Gruenwald's run. I think towards the end it kind of petered out, unfortunately. But Mark Wade, you know, comes in, starts kicking ass and taking names with the book. And what do they decide to do? Well, we're going to cancel it, start it over with a new number one uh, with uh, the image guys coming back to uh, take on some of the Marvel properties that were kind of flagging at the time, with the exception of Captain America, in an event called Heroes Reborn. So this week, I thought, in a, in a nice little bit of coincidence of that I got to uh, interview the the, um, the scripter of this issue just before recording this tonight, I dug out a book that I think gets a lot of crap and some of it's deserved, but is, in my opinion, a really solid Captain America story. I dug out Captain America number one from November 1996. This issue title is Courage. Rockin' Rob Liefeld, story, pencils, and edits. Jazzin' Jeff Loeb, writer. Plot assist by Chuck Dixon, and I'll get to that in my notes. Um, Jovial John Sabal, inker. Bombastic Brian Haberlin, colors. Extreme color separations. Righteous Richard Starkings with Comicraft's Dave Lampier letters. And I can't read this word. Bouncing Bob Harris, Chief. We open on the Pledge of Allegiance as the camera slowly uh, pans in on the form of Captain America, who for some reason does not have an A on his forehead. The, the narration says, These are the principles, the pledge, upon which the American dream was based. Today the American dream is lost, for the dreamer is missing and steve rogers wakes up in an impossibly huge bedroom thinking that he had another one of his nightmares and he, he considers briefly waking his wife peggy to tell her about them but he thinks for some reason he should keep them to himself because if he tells her it could be dangerous the next morning he has a lot of family time with his wife and son and some, you know, nice little family banter is had. And he goes and is picked up by his friend Nathan to head to work. And we get a little bit from the Expositional News Network about the World Party holding a rally this weekend here uh, in Philadelphia. 
Some of you may remember the la- that the last time the World Party met in Chicago, violence shut down the event between the right-wing members of the groups and the JDL, who claimed that the World Party has organizational ties to both white supremacist groups and neo-Nazis foundations. So Steve and Nathan kind of talk about this. And along the way to work, he sees an old man standing by the road. The old man just kind of stares at him. It's kind of creepy. And he asks, Captain? On the way into work, he looks into the rear. Steve looks into the rear view one more time and sees the old man yet again. So that day at lunch, Steve and his friends are all sitting there chowing down when he mentions that he had a dream the previous night that he's wearing... And guys, this is weird, he says. He's wearing a costume. And his friend Nathan says, you mean like a dress? He's like, no, man, it was like a flag. And Nathan's like, a flag? Okay, guys, I gotta go take a crap before work. And that's when Nathan goes over to a phone, places a phone call and says, Sir, we may have a problem. That night, Steve Rogers falls asleep wa- uh, watching television, and the end of the day comes, and I and I didn't even know in 1996 that this stuff still happened. I mean, I remember when I was a kid when they would conclude the broadcasting day with, like, the national anthem or something, but I thought by 96 everything was pretty much 24 hours with infomercials. And as he sits there and listens to God Bless America, he has another dream of being an ass-kicking Captain America. He wakes up, and wonders how uh, is he is ever going to get his wife to understand or anyone to understand the dreams when he doesn't even understand him themselves. Elsewhere in Philadelphia, the following night, as a matter of fact, Ricky Barnes is rather is sitting on her stoop and is rather depressed about the fact that she has not gotten into uh, Juilliard uh, because she could not get the scholarship. So as she sits there and broods on that, her brother and his overly muscled friend, who is all out of proportion, come by and kind of pick on her. And apparently they're going to the World Party rally that night. She tries to uh, stop them by doing some really wicked gymnastics. But that doesn't work, and they kind of shove her to the side and walk on. Meanwhile, in a cathedral that has apparently been deconsecrated, Master Man the most awesome Nazi ever outside of the Red Skull, sits and he says, For years now I have surrounded myself with sheep and wolves' clothing, I alone having the will to do what is necessary, executing a plan hatched some 50 years ago in a bunker in war-torn Berlin, leaving Isn't me... is German? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing Why a really bad Why does he have a Russian accent? <laughs> Sorry. I was actually kind of going for Arnold Schwarzenegger, but you can all kiss my ass. Um... <laughs> So basically, Masterman's got a plan, and he's about to hatch it, and the world party's involved. So he goes and addresses the crowd, and they're all eaten right out of his hands, buying into his, you know, Nazi claptrap, though he doesn't call them Nazis. In the audience, uh, a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent named, I kid you not, Ethan Hunt, sneaks away, goes deeper into the cathedral, which apparently has a stone basement, and in that basement is a bunch of nuclear weapons. So he figures, okay, I'm going to call HQ on this because this is bad. When he is uh, faced uh, with a man who we don't see, but he goes, you, you're alive? Apparently, the voice says, you, however, will be unable to share that information with anyone. Pity. 
At the same time, Steve Rogers is walking uh, seemingly on an errand for his wife, but really he just needed to get out and clear his head when the man from the previous day comes up and starts talking to him and basically says, you know, I know who you are and, uh, you know, beg your pardon, sir, but you have been on a boat. Everything from a destroyer to an aircraft carrier, you went where you were needed. And Steve goes, "Uh, I don't mean to be rude. You're needed again, you know, the man says. Now more than ever. And he takes him back to his apartment. And instead of this being really creepy, which it could have been, he takes him into a basement, which is filled not with, like, you know, bizarre pornography, but Captain America S.H.I.E.L.D. And that's when everything starts kind of clicking with Steve. And at the same time, a bunch of no-goodniks are outside, and they launch a bunch of missiles at the house, and there's a huge explosion and they go to investigate the rubble to see if they can find the remains of the people they were trying to kill. And out of the rubble busts Captain America's shield. And he says, this ends now. And he's standing there, not in costume because his clothes are all ripped, but he's got the shield. And, and I, I think it's fair to say that Captain America makes pretty short work of these guys. He slices one dude with his shield, uh, di- uh, blocks a bunch of fire with another throws the shield again, and he is just kicking ass and taking names all over the place. And once all of the men are down, he goes back to the old man who says, uh, your voice is strong, good, you'll need it to make them listen. Steve says, I'll get him to a hospital. He goes, can't, my time was up a long ago. Did what needed to be done. Steve, they know. And he, and he tells the man whose name is Abe that he'll, and he, Abe interrupts him, he goes, no, they know about your wife and your son. Not safe. And Abe dies. He goes, rest easy, soldier. Your, your death will be avenged. And it ends with, to fight out a war, you must believe something with all your might. More than that, you must be willing to commit yourself to a course, perhaps a long and hard one, without being able to foresee exactly where, where you will come out. All that is required is that you should go as hard as, you ever, as ever you can. The rest belongs to fate. And that was Oliver Wendell Holmes. Meanwhile, on the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier, Dum Dum Dugan and Sharon Carter inform Nick Fury that the Patriot is awake. And he goes, oh, is, is he? Oh, he is, is he? Excuse me. I don't know if I should be happy or sad, but one thing's for damn sure. This time, it's going to be on our terms. The man's name is Nick Fury. In the world of espionage, there is none better. If we told you anything else... We'd have to kill you. Well, what are you waiting for? Fury says, go get him. And if Mr. Rogers doesn't want to come along peaceable-like, make him. Next time. Secrets. Um, I vividly remember when uh, the Heroes Reborn thing happened. I was, uh, my friend Tom owned a comic shop at the time, and this was one of those huge events of that summer, you know, with them starting, you know, Marvel's most classic properties over again. And then is now, I actually kind of like this book. I, it's really odd because, you know, Rob Liefeld and Scott and I have talked about this in the past. Rob Liefeld takes a beating in, in, in the fan in fan circles, you know, yeah. every, everything from people telling him, you know, saying he sucks to one douchebag, you know, going up to him at a convention and filming him and his buddy giving Rob a copy of How to Draw the Marvel Way. And while I will admit that his art style is not perfect uh, and that his stories can be 
kind of derivative and his characters not always the most original there is an energy to his work that is hard to deny and you can really tell in his artwork throughout this issue which has its problems don't get me wrong but you can really tell that he was excited to be doing captain america uh, I remember the big controversy of the time was the fact that they replaced the A on his cowl with the shield logo. That was a big deal. I remember a lot of people being pissed off about that. Oh, I thought that was Wonder Woman's bustier emblem. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was like the crossover that dare not speak its name. Um, there is a uh, credit that says plot assist by Chuck Dixon. Originally, Chuck Dixon was going to be the scripter on this book, but something fell through. So Rob... Uh, tapped Jeff Loeb to come on and they produced six issues of the series. And from what Rob says, and I've heard in interviews countless times and Jeff Loeb that their run was canceled, not due to poor sales, but to kind of basically office politics, you know, because around the same time that issues, you know, four and five were coming out, Rob, you know, basically depending on who you believe was either fired or quit image comics. And it caused this huge fallout and he and, and, and Jeff were removed from the book. James Robinson came on to the title and did what I thought were some pretty serviceable Captain America stories. It reminded me more of the 70s era than anything else. But dealing with, with this issue in particular, you know, yeah, the artwork isn't perfect. Yeah, the proportions are all kinds of wonky. But, you know, it, there's such an energy to this story that it's hard really not to like it. It's I love the idea. And this is, I think, what, what really gets me about this this take on Captain America and why I think it's, it's actually a very viable take is not so much that Captain America at the end of World War II was, in an, you know, was with Bucky Barnes and they were fighting Baron Zemo and the plane exploded and they fell and he fell in the ice and the Avengers found him. Found him. But that basically he had kind of become a sleeper agent, uh, you know, kind of like a Jason Bourne type character. And he's slowly starting to remember his previous life, but only in, you know, only when he's dreaming. And the dream sequences are actually kind of cool. The double page spread when he falls asleep listening to God Bless America. Cap looks really awesome. The soldiers are a little wonky. And, and the coloring here is kind of cool. Because Cap's in color, the background's in color, but the Nazi soldiers are all black and white, which gives it kind of more of a dream quality. But I love the idea that Steve Rogers was basically placed in wherever he's working. He's got a handler in the form of Nathan. And once he starts talking about wearing a flag, Nathan calls it in, basically, you know, basically telling HQ, uh, guys, you know, <laughs> shit's about to go down. And... Just the whole thing of uh, Abe finding him and giving him the shield and the men attacking. I mean, this would make... If they had done a Captain America movie in the 90s and this was the plot, I would have been very satisfied with it. Do you think um, that, but, uh, that they got any of their background story from Total Recall, though? <clears throat> Seems kind of derivative of it, the whole... You know, having your memory wiped clean and uh, being working somewhere and you talk to your co-workers about these dreams that you've been having and that they know that there's something wrong. Well, really seems like the only Schwarzenegger Total Recall. Yeah, well, you see, I've only seen that movie once. So, 
Damn for me, I, I never made a real big connection between the two. And I got to think, for some reason, it feels familiar in other places, too. Like, this sort of thing has been done before, not just in Total Recall. I, I just can't quite place exactly where it was. But mm-hmm. as far as being a first issue, I, I was rather pleased with this. Uh, I, I really like the fact that Steve himself never puts on the costume, but we get to see Captain America in action fighting Nazis, as God intended. <laughs> and uh, the writing is is pretty sharp. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Jeff Loeb is actually... Uh, I, I did the math on this, and there was an equation to it. Jeff Loeb is my favorite writer. It's not that I think he is the best writer to ever work in comics, but when I look at people who have worked on characters that I love, Superman, Batman, the Hulk, Jeff Loeb has produced runs with all of those characters that I enjoy immensely. So based on that algorithm, I kind of came to the conclusion that Jeff's my favorite writer. And here... I always get the feeling that his writing is very cinematic in the 90s because he was coming from the position of being a screenwriter. I mean, we're talking about the man that wrote Teen Wolf and Commando. So uh, two, I think, are I think of them as classic movies. I don't know about you guys. Uh, Can't go as far as classic. Really? They're not bad. They're not bad. Don't I figured you'd be a Commando like, fan, if nothing else. I do. I like Commando. Uh, but... I wouldn't go as far as classic. I mean, I, I think that may be the huge difference between you and I. I think if I were 10 years younger, I I might think of them as classics. Uh, I enjoyed them. Uh, not, not so much Teen Wolf, actually. I, I really kind of could have done without that altogether. Commando was pretty good. Well, as, as I was uh, joking with a friend the other day, you know, they've remade Teen Wolf into a... Um you know, Twilight-type werewolf show on MTV, and they remade Commando and Taken and kind of did it right. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's, I love that's not a bad uh, comparison. <laughs> Actually, when I first heard the trailer for Taken, I was like, oh, wow, that is kind of like Commando, except, you know, this guy can actually kick some ass instead of Arnold just, you know, carrying a tree. So not that Arnold doesn't kick ass in Commando, but still. Um, but overall, I just... I enjoy this issue and I enjoy this entire story. I, you know, like I said, I like the concept that he's, you know, he's the sleeper agent that has been awakened. He's been awakened because the bad guys are amassing nuclear weapons. I mean, this is like pure adrenaline action movie, uh, action movie stuff from the eighties and nineties. And like I said, if they had made this into a film in the nineties, I think I would have been really, well, depending on who directed it, course but i think the story wise i would have been really satisfied now i I will be a little critical of some of the art the art choices that he made um i joked that he's in a that steve is in an impossibly huge bedroom this this bed is like bigger than a king-size bed it is freaking huge and uh, and it just kind of takes me out of the story a little bit um i look at steve rogers face and I kind of see Rob Liefeld in it. I don't know if he was using himself as kind of like a model, like looking in a mirror or something, but uh, that that was kind of weird. But, you know, he's got that kind of all-American boy look to it anyways. Um, what was that other piece of art that I just didn't like? Oh, um, when Ricky Barnes is talking to her brother and his friend, his friend's arms are just, oh, yeah. are basically bigger than her brother. And it's kind of, <laughs> 
wonky, you know? He looks like that guy from X Factor there. Big, yeah, uh, big Doofus or whatever his name Strong was. Strong guy. Yeah, Strong that guy. was it. Yeah. Guido. Um, though I do like <laughs> that even though it's not revealed in this issue that the Red Skull is the ultimate villain, that her brother and his friend have Red Skull jackets and tattoos. Oh, that's cool. And I didn't even notice it, that. And yeah, it's actually kind of... Either. It's very subtle for a Rob Liefeld book, so I thought that was kind of cool. Um, but but as, as bad as his friend looks, Ricky Barnes herself and the storytelling on these pages is actually quite good, and it, you know it's very ener- energetic and and I and I you know it's it's like every time I don't like something, something comes along that I really like. Like his take on Masterman is awesome, and being a huge Invaders fan, I love Masterman. I really, really think it's too bad that we never got uh, Roy Thomas to write in an Invaders All-Star Squadron crossover. Yes. Because Masterman and Captain Nazi fighting side-by-side would have been freaking awesome. I, there would And Baron Blitzkrieg and the Red Skull. Oh, God, it would have been so great. <laughs> but then a couple pages later, we see Ethan Hunt, who is obviously based on Tom Cruise from Mission Impossible, because that was the big film that summer. Or one of the big films. I actually thought the big film that summer summer was The Phantom. Um, but he's in this cathedral that has this like stone basement like it's a castle. And in that basement are a bunch of nuclear missiles. And it looks weird. It just it doesn't look right. And it kind of takes me out of the story for a minute. But luckily, the next page, again, Liefeld kind of rebounds. And it's you know we get some really decent storytelling here. Well, then um, we go to the uh, Steve Rogers looking like John Travolta at the beginning of Saturday Night Fever. But I, I think that the, the, the biggest artistic quibble I have with this issue is how the proportions of the shield change on every Yes, page. yes, thank and, you. I had that same note. It, that made me crazy. Yes. It just drives me nuts because when Abe brings it out, he's holding it and his hands are Jack Kirby huge even though he's shown to be a very small guy. And it looks like he's carrying a garbage can lid. And then in the next picture, it looks like, okay, Captain America's shield. And then when Steve busts out of the ground, again, (laughs) the shield looks really small. It's a Frisbee, yes. But then on the next page, it's a little bigger. And then on the next page, it's how it should be. You go back to that page where, where his arm comes busting up out of the ground. And he he crouches and then he fully stands. It actually looks like the shield is growing in proportion to him standing up. Yeah. With the shield and it's very very disconcerting. Yeah, I mean it's it's not a bad scene. Don't get me wrong. No, I I, I like the scene. It's just the 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 shield, the the size changing thing with the shield is that was my major quibble with the art, and it was a shame because I love this really metallic look that they pull. Mm-hmm. I don't know how this was achieved. Color, uh, computer art, coloring. But it's beautiful. It really yeah. looks good. So it made it that much more disappointing that they couldn't seem to get a consistency with the size of the shield because the shield looks damn good. Yeah, when, on that page when he throws it and it's glinting in the like, it's just like, wow, that's freaking awesome. Yeah. And, but the, you know, the proportions are the problem through the whole issue. I mean, that's that's yeah. the, the Liefeld problem. You you know, you pointed out the size of the guy's arm. Uh, when when Abe first brings him the shield, the next panel when he's holding it and they're standing next to each other, look at the height difference between Steve and Abe. 
Yeah. I, I mean, he looks like he took Hank Pym's uh, shrinking formula there. <laughs> so, I mean, so, that, that's proportion is not Liefeld's strength. Let's just be fair. And it's not. But as I said, I think he makes up for it in, in enthusiasm. And that is why I think I'm constantly drawn to Rob Liefeld artwork is because it can be terrible. I mean, Youngblood, the first couple issues of that series, were not his best efforts. And I think Liefeld is one of these pencilers that really benefits from a good, strong inker. Like, his work on Hawk and Dove was great, because you had Carl Kessel there, who I think is Terry Austin-level inker. Um, You know, he's that freaking good, kind of made everything work. But when he inks himself, or when he has an inker that is is like too slavish to Liefeld's style, you get a lot of wonkiness with it. But overall, I gotta say that these six issues are a lot of fun. They're really exciting. He gets to fight Masterman, he gets to fight Crossbones, and I loved Liefeld's take on Crossbones. I thought that was great. Uh, I think the only part of this story that I don't like is the fact that they introduce eventually Sam Wilson as Abe's son. Uh, and during the final battle, Sam and Steve are going into you know into the fight, and Sam is injured. And it basically looks from the artwork like Steve is feeding Sam his own blood, and that reinvigorates him. And it's like the one moment of the story where I went, no. Um, that's stupid. But everything <laughs> else, in terms of re, you know, I love Mark Waite's run on Captain America, his first run and his second run. Even though his second run was full of like political problems behind the scenes, uh, and I think Mark Waite had a great take on how to do Captain America for the then modern era. You know, stop calling everybody son make it more of a Tom Clancy-like action story. You know, just do straight-ahead, great superhero stuff. And Marvel being how it was at the time, I don't know if sales just weren't where they wanted it to be, or they had had this Heroes Reborn thing in the works before Wade came right. on. And That's were, what I think it was. Yeah, and that we're was just my like, impression, too. Yeah, we're just going to do this anyways. So... To, their, to the mind of the people creating this book, they weren't replacing Mark Wade. They were replacing Mark Gruenwald. Right. And as much as I love Mark, the late Mark Gruenwald, who we eventually, just yesterday, I think, uh, celebrated, well, not celebrated, but marked uh, the anniversary of his passing, um, as much as I respect him as a creator and I love a good portion of his Captain America run. Let's face it, towards the end there, it wasn't all that good. Cap in the armor was just, it just, it wasn't a good story. I've read it all. So I'm not talking out of my ass here. So I, I think, you know, to Liefeld and Jim Lee's minds, they were being hired by Marvel to kind of come back and take, you know, four of their properties that had been kind of languishing and say, hey, here, this is what we can do for it for the 90s. And that's that may sound like a pejorative, but it's really not, because you know this this I think we can all agree at the end of the day it's a business and they have to make money at this. So on paper it made sense to bring back two of Marvel's superstars to you know kind of reboot the books that they had 
inadvertently made kind of passe because everyone was paying attention to X-Force and X-Men and New Mutants instead of paying attention to Captain America and the Avengers. So because of all of that, I really can't hate on this book too much. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's what the market was kind of demanding. And this issue sold well. And really, on the whole, except I think for the Avengers, all of the Heroes Reborn books were at least readable. Fantastic Four was actually quite good. I liked, I liked Jim Lee's take on the FF quite a bit. And Iron Man was really good as well, especially with how they brought in the Hulk. But this one will always be my favorite because I'm a Cap fan. So, But that's all I really got on it. Uh, as far as my notes and stuff, my wild haphazard notes that I kind of scribbled out this morning while I was taking care of the dogs. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, I, I kind of agree with you on Liefeld. Uh, I know we've talked before about, uh, at least I think we have, uh, I find enthusiasm to be contagious. Uh, whenever I'm reading a book, watching a movie, listening to music, whatever... I get a lot more enjoyment out of it if I feel like the person who is providing me the entertainment enjoys doing it. And I always got that impression from Liefeld. I don't think I've ever seen a photograph of Liefeld where he doesn't have a huge grin on his face. Mm-hmm. He just always seems to be enjoying it. He seems to understand like how lucky he is to have advanced in this particular business that you know so many people would love to be able to what he's doing. And there's just a certain enthusiasm to what he does that I find to be contagious uh, equally to the opposite way that I get offended by people like Alan Moore who kind of set themselves off as being better than us and, and I don't care how good their story is sometimes that attitude turns me off and it makes me not want to read them so it's almost you know an, an opposite effect for Liefeld uh, Jeff Loeb you know uh, Obviously, you know, I think everybody's familiar with the sad story of what he's had to go through. And uh, I, I find it hard to critique him uh, fairly since that happened. Because I just, that, that thought comes into my mind that I almost feel it's wrong to criticize anything the guy does. Uh, but he, he, I mean, he's a definitely a very good writer uh, and, and has written some great stuff. I mean, he's written some subpar things as well. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, his stuff is terrific. Uh, another uh, just wonky proportion scene I had made a note of, the scene at the very end when you have Sharon and Dum Dum standing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dum Dum's like... Tall was Dum Dum. Yeah. And Dum Dum's looking kind of like, uh, you know, maybe like Lou Costello as far as physically. He looks for goddamn ridiculous in that outfit, I have to say. I mean, that doesn't strike me as a guy who's been a soldier for his whole life and is still in that particular business. I mean, if if you know if you're that big, then why would you be wearing a skin tight outfit? (laughs) You know, I mean, you've really got to be very very self confident to wear an outfit like that in the first place. And everybody else in this, if they're a if they're a guy then they're just super macho buff. If they're a woman, then they're just the hottest thing ever. He's just a fat slob, and he's still wearing the same skin-tight, you know, spray-painted-on outfit that everybody else is, and he just looks ridiculous. And that's not an art critique so much as it's just a costuming decision, like, 
why do you have the fat guy in the same skin tight getup as everybody else? You know, yeah. have him in like jeans and you know a, a, a big shirt or something. He just and looks I, I silly. I don't think uh, Dum Dum Dugan, other than this one, I don't think he was ever portrayed as being a fat guy. He was a burly, barrel-chested kind of yeah, guy. Yeah, kind of right. like a Dan Turpin type character. Yeah, yeah, exactly, a kind of guy who you'd expect to kick some ass in a ballroom yeah. brawl. Because he had been a—he was like a circus strongman or something like that before the uh, the Howling Commandos, right? Isn't that his backstory? I think, that's, like I think that. that is. Yeah. And how come Sharon's a good two feet taller than him? <laughs> I mean, what is he? Four feet tall? Because that would still only put her at six feet, which is still considerably tall. And that the. the the, that proportion is terrible. That those are the kind of shots that take me out of the issue. I'll agree I did with that. really like the uh, the splash. I think at the very beginning, uh, when uh, yeah, I try, I'm working off my digital from the CD and I'm having trouble getting to it. Yeah, the first uh, splash page where he's small in the background. I like the way the that the soldiers were shown in gray tones against the brown background with Cap basically really standing out because of the red, white, and blue. I thought that was a really good artistic choice. Uh, I didn't like... You know, one of the things I don't like about Liefeld's faces is he always seems to put unnecessary line work on it. There's always like... Yeah. I just don't know why they're there. Uh, I didn't like the way he drew Steve Rogers' nose. It kind of reminded me like of a... Uh, Post plastic surgery, Michael Jackson. <laughs> uh, I, I went back and forth on a couple of the art choices with uh, uh, what's his name, Abe, with his eyes. The way they show him like being so deeply set that they're so dark. I kind of like that. Uh, yeah, I thought I he was a same... zombie or something when he first showed up there. I thought he was like, possessed or something. <laughs> 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 yeah, I just I just think that that kind of shows the age and just kind of that craggy face. He, he did a little bit of the same thing with Masterman, and I thought that went well. But when he got to the uh, the Tom Cruise guy, uh, I didn't like the way he shows the teeth shining in the dark. It just yeah. didn't look right. He, it's it's the sad thing about his art is that you know for a man who does have such enthusiasm. W- <sighs> I'm trying to think of how to say this. Where he's bad at it, he's, like, really bad at it. You know, everyone makes fun of, you know, Liefeld's, the way Liefeld draws feet. But, you know, his noses are kind of off, and his teeth are kind of off. And, it's you know, every, everyone does have that. You know, Scott, I think, nailed it on the head. Everyone kind of looks like they're 16 seconds from being extras on The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... I don't like saying that because it sounds like I'm just being unnecessarily harsh on the man and his work. But, you know, sometimes you just got to call a spade a spade. Well, but you see, the thing is, I think his, like I said, I think his enthusiasm comes through and I enjoy it. And I think his storytelling is very good. Just from a technical, you know, anatomy point of view, I think, uh, you know, his proportions are off. You know, other than that, it's still a hell of a lot better than anything I could put on paper. He strikes me as someone that was pressed into service before he was truly ready. You know what I mean? Because I look at this and I see great potential. I don't hate it. You know, I, I think that, like you say, there's a hell of a lot of enthusiasm. There's a lot of energy. You know, it's, 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 it's full of energy in all of these uh, illustrations. 
he definitely is enjoying what he's doing. He, he's got some fantastic layout work. But to me, it looks like some of the pictures I've seen of early, early, early McFarlane, when McFarlane yeah. was just constantly sending in tryout stuff to Marvel, and they would make highlights and notes, and then they would send it back and reject it. And that's what this looks like to me, is that this guy just needed a few more rejection letters. He needed more work, more practice, before he was truly ready to handle a top-tier Marvel book. That's ultimately the problem. And because that didn't happen, and he found himself you know, a superstar with Marvel, then I don't think that he got that that needed practice and that needed work to become the great artist that that he could potentially be. And I think that's a real shame because I think the guy, I mean, I don't think he's a terrible artist at all. I just think he needs refinement, you know, because there's a lot of really good stuff in here. There's there's panels and frames in here that I absolutely love. And then there's other ones that I look at and just go, wow, this looks like, you know, some high school student drew, you know, drew it in, in art class or something. So... I don't know. I mean, I can't hate on the art. I, I, I won't hate on the art because I, I think that that's just become one of those things that comic people do. And it, it just annoys me. You know, it's it's like Paul said, he as bad as some of these panels are, it's still 10 times better than anything I could ever put to paper. So I oh, can't definitely. bust on the guy, you know. But the one thing that happens again and again and again in this issue that I have to point out just because it really did bug me. And I think the best example of it, I'm looking at a CBR, of course. The pages are not numbered. But on my CBR, it's page 25. It's the page right after Tom Cruise gets busted with the nukes in the basement. That very next page, it's Steve Rogers walking down the street. And that first panel of him walking. From this point on, every man in this book looks like their pants are being sucked into their asshole. And I don't understand <laughs> this artistic... Everybody's got this problem. It's like their butthole is a black hole, and it's slowly sucking their jeans up into it. What the hell is this? You couldn't walk like this. I mean, that would be so uncomfortable. I, and everybody's got the same problem. I noticed it happened with Masterman a few panels back. And from here on out, look at Steve Rogers' crotch. Every single time you see it, it's got this same, like, every line is, is like, going into his... And it's like, what is this? If I walked out of the house wearing jeans like that, my wife would be like, no, you are not leaving the house looking <laughs> like that. Go change those friggin' pants. You look ridiculous. So, I mean, is it just a matter of he's, his pants are just too tight? Or what the hell is going on? But it just looks freakish. But like I say, I don't want to bust on the art. But that was the one. Even with Nick Fury, I love that last page of Nick Fury. It's awesome. That's a really, really good... Or not the last page. I'm sorry. The next to last page where he, where it's the full reveal of Nick Fury. And he's standing up and he's got his stogie in his mouth and his fist is balled up. That's a great picture. But even in that picture, he's got the, the nut wedgie thing going on, too. And it's like, Jesus, what is with these guys in these tight pants? I just don't get it, you know? Is Thankfully, this... there's a word balloon covering over dum-dum's junk. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't need to see that. <laughs> I mean, is this one for the ladies or something? What the hell is this? I just, I, I just don't All get it. All the single ladies? All the single ladies. <laughs> you got your nuts up. But I tell you, uh, what I liked best about this issue, my absolute favorite thing, 
was I like that here this is it's it's the first issue it's a whole new series a whole new origin story whatever and for a change the bad guy wasn't one of the big ones he wasn't one of the obvious ones it's freaking masterman and i love that i thought that was really good that they didn't go with the red skull or baron zemo or one you know one of the guys that you would you know naturally think of as being the cap villain you know they went with a lesser one and i like that i think that was a a really interesting choice and a, and a really good one. So, and he should be one of the main villains. He should be much yeah. better than he is. Yeah, definitely. I'm a little surprised that they haven't uh, pushed him a little bit more. Well, that's all I got on that. Uh, I I, uh, I was not into this stuff when it was coming. What what year was it? Ninety six. You said ninety six. Yeah, I. Uh, I've read precious little of of the Heroes Reborn stuff. I, uh, I I'm not sure exactly where I was in my collecting when all this was going on, but I don't think I was into Marvel like at all. I, I, I think you were also, to be fair, um, dealing with the birth of your right. Uh, I, I was yeah, I was definitely I was a new father at the time. But I'm I'm just saying, as far as comics go, I. I'm not sure what I was. I know Thor. I was keeping up with Thor because I remember when Thor uh, reached its final issue and all that. But uh, beyond that, I, I might have just been out of Marvel at that point when they ended basically the the universe. I was like, okay, well, thanks. Yeah, it's been fun, and I, I don't think I went further with any of it. Now, how many how many issues did uh, Cap, uh, Heroes Reborn Cap run? Do you know? Uh, it was all of them ran thirteen. Oh, okay. And uh, the final issues on all of them were cross. They did they did two crossover events uh, at like around issue six or seven. Uh, they had the big Galactus storyline, uh, and then the final issues, all the thirteens, were a crossover with the Wildstorm universe, uh, leading to me go me to kind of yawn because uh, I was never really a big fan. I, I think the the one problem I have with the run as a whole is that in the final in the, in Captain America number 7 when James Robinson took over they revealed that the reason why Cap was put under as a sleeper agent basically was that Truman told him that they were going to nuke Hiroshima and Nagasaki and Cap's like I don't agree with this decision and I'm going to go tell the American public that I don't agree with this decision. And they're like, oh shit, we can't have Captain America going and, and disagreeing with our policy, so let's put him under. They did something like that in that, I don't know if it was Marvel Knights. It was one of those series in between, like, Heroes Return and um, when Cap got rebooted Marvel in that Knights? series, yeah, right the, the after. Yeah, right around the time of like 9/11, there was a, a brand new Cap series that that kicked off where he was fighting terrorists and stuff. Somewhere in that that period, I remember reading a Cap story where uh, he found out that the government knew that he was trapped in ice somewhere, and they just let him lie because they were afraid that if they if they got him out or whatever, that he would stop them from nuking. Uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so they they just left him there all those years, and I that never sat well with me. I didn't I didn't care for that 
I, I don't remember it ever really going anywhere other than I remember like the dramatic last page is him getting to the end of the dossier and being really pissed off about it. But beyond that, I can't remember what what came of that story, if anything. But I I didn't like that. So I wonder is that you know is that somebody picking up that that thread from from Robinson probably two or different something? writers having yeah. the same kind of uh, yeah so. But yeah, that's all I got in it. It was an interesting book. I, I like I said, I'd never, uh, I'd never read any of this before. Now she somehow or other, she uh, the the Ricky uh, Bucky character, she survived the whole yeah the, universe thing, right? Yeah, they they had like a, a Heroes Reborn type miniseries type thing. Uh, I forget when, but they had a bunch of one shots that were all like part of the same group. And then uh, they had the Heroes Reborn, like, anniversary story that Liefeld and Loeb did, uh, you know, in, in 2006. Right. And somehow she got over to our universe and was, like, the backup story in Captain America for a while. Huh. She became Nomad. Yes, she, that's, that's exactly it. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. All right, well, are we ready to move on? On to DC. All right, on to DC. All right, so for my comic, chosen once again by a Random Number Generator, this one's going to take us all the way back to June slash July of 1974 Ooh. for the fifth issue of DC Comics' The Shadow. Now, uh, this particular issue, I've had this issue in my collection seemingly forever, Um for as long as I can remember, it's been sitting in a in a box unread. And really, the 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 main reason it's been sitting there unread all these years is I could never get past the cover on this book. Um, I wanted it because I'm I'm a completist. I'm still trying to complete you know my run of of the Shadow from this era. Um, it, I think it was like twelve issues, and I think I have eight of the twelve. But as much of a fan as I am of, of the of the first four issues, you get to the fifth issue, and suddenly they went from it being Mike Kaluta, who's, you know, it's Mike Kaluta, and then all of a sudden it's Frank Robbins. And so the cover on this one is the shadow, and he's like he's springing up out of the ocean like a dolphin or something, and he's he's got his uh, guns, you know, a gun in each hand, and a, you know he's shooting. And there's like these pseudo Nazi looking guys that he's shooting at, and they're on the the deck of a ship. And one of the Nazi guys is hitting a woman in the throat and knocking her overboard. But she's got like dead eyes. She has like completely white eyes, no pupils or anything, and she's flailing. She's turning her into over. the Hulk. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's bizarre, man. It's a really really bizarre cover. And that's as far as I could ever get. And I was just like, eh, I don't know. So all these years, it has just sat in my collection and uh, and just been waiting for the waiting for its opportunity. So uh, you know, I just I, I want to I would love to know what the story was. You know, how, how who makes the decision to follow up Mike Kaluta with Frank Robbins? You know, I mean that you talk about your your jarring <laughs> transitions. The, the same guy that thought that Frank Robbins was a good artist. <laughs> but, uh... I'm sorry, that was harsh. 
you know, so anyway, this this issue, you know, it's written by Denny O'Neill, and it's entitled Night of Neptune's Death, which I think is a, a pretty awful title, really. And it doesn't reflect the story at all. Once I read the story, I was like, well, how does that really, it doesn't really work. So all of this, you know, coupled with a, uh, we'll call it an interesting splash page, just to be nice, on which the shadow certifies that, uh, you know, the events related herein are all true. You know, this added up to me being uh, less than enthusiastic about this particular book. I, you know, I went into it with very, very low expectations. In fact, I got to admit, I almost cheated and just went and picked something else. But I really do try to stick to my own rules for this show. As loosey-goosey as they are, you know, I, I do try to stick with, you know, whatever the random number generator picks. All right, well, that's, you know, that's why I do it by random number generator. So I will get completely random issues. Some of them I'm going to like. Some of them I'm not going to like. Some of them I never would have picked on my own. That's why I use the random number generator. So I was stuck with this issue. So we begin the story at the piers at the foot of Manhattan, and the year is not given, but uh, we can more or less cipher that out as you know over the course of the story what year, generally speaking, this must be taking place. Two thugs lie in wait as a limousine pulls up to a docked ship's gangplank. The thugs prepare to fire when a haunting, cackling, maniacal laugh chills them to the bone. From out of the mist, the shadow materializes and gives them a choice: drop their weapons or pay the consequences. The men open fire, but the Shadow's marksmanship is uncanny as he disarms the men with his own blazing guns. Two of the Shadow's trusted agents, Harry Vincent and Shrevnitz, the cabbie, come to their master's aid. But the fight is already over, the thugs having been knocked out, or been knocked unconscious, rather, by the Shadow. He informs his agents of the scheme in this, uh, in this issue, these men work for the unfortunately named General Sodom. Not to be confused with General Sodomy, because that's a completely different thing altogether. <laughs> General Sodom, uh, he's the leader of a small army. And this hit was intended to take out one Cyril Bench, who's a peace envoy. And he was on his way to broker a deal to keep the United States out of the war in Europe in the hopes that a full-scale world war... Uh, might be good for Sodom. Well, you know that that was Sodom's point and why he wanted to take this this guy out is that he wants there to be a full scale world war because he's basically a soldier for hire with an army for hire and this might be really good for his business. Does this plot sound kind of familiar to anybody? So Harry uh, is ordered by the Shadow to uh, tag along on Bench's uh, trip aboard this uh, little freighter called the SS Boxer. And he wants Harry to keep an eye on him, while Shrevnitz is told to return to HQ and await further orders. The men look back, but the shadow has gone and pulled a Batman and disappeared on them, whisking the thugs away as well to an unknown fate. The next morning, the shadow's agent and sort of girlfriend, Margot Lane, boards a completely different ship, the Neptune, a new luxury liner uh, about to embark on her maiden voyage. No sooner is the ship out of port, however, when the captain and passengers are confronted by General Sodom and his goons. They mercilessly gun down the skipper and threaten the patrons, but their reasoning for doing all this isn't made clear to us, the reader, just yet. 
Margot Lane playing, plays faint of heart, and one of Sodom's men escorts her out on the deck for some fresh air. She quickly dispatches the henchman and dumps him overboard. Armed with a machine gun, she makes her way to the radio room and makes contact with Burbank, the Shadow's dispatcher. And she's in the process of informing him of the situation when Sodom sneaks in on her and clonks her on the head, knocking her out. Now, what I like about that part is that it it wasn't just dumb luck or happenstance. Sodom actually came to the radio room with a purpose. So it wasn't just one of these things where, you know, it it was convenient for the story that he find her and, and knock her out. He was actually headed there. And his reason was that uh, he then broadcasts an ultimatum to the ship that Bench is on. And he tells him, basically, surrender yourself or the people aboard the Neptune are all going to die. So Bench, he's an upstanding guy. He's perfectly willing to surrender himself. But the FBI agent that's protecting him says, "Uh uh-uh. And he won't allow the uh, ship that he's on to alter course to comply with this. So enter the Shadow, who regrets the violence, but quickly takes out the FBI agent, saying that uh, his interference may become troublesome, which I thought was a great line. The Shadow confronts Bench and demands that Bench look into his eyes, and he says, Do you see evil there, or justice? And Bench stammers out that he sees justice and that he shall trust the Shadow. So Harry arrives a little late to the party, and uh, together he and his master make plans. And soon the Neptune pulls up alongside the boxer, and a makeshift uh, cable swing is strung between the two ships. Bench and the FBI guys start across toward the Neptune, and they're headed straight into the sights of the uh, weapon that Sodom is wielding. And just as he's about to fire, the FBI guy, who is actually Harry in disguise, sets off this flare which blinds everybody, you know, blinds Sodom and his men. They open fire, but they're just shooting blindly. And by the time they regain their vision, it's too late. The Shadow is aboard. With Harry at his side, guns spitting out doom from either hand, the Shadow makes short work of the General's lackeys. So sensing defeat, the General retreats to the bridge where he has Margot Lane all tied up, and he sets a full-speed collision course with the Boxer intent to just destroy the other ship and kill everybody, including uh, the guy that he wanted to take out originally, Bench. And then he smashes the controls so that nobody can uh, do anything about it. And Margot screams, she says, you drown hundreds, including yourself, rather than admit failure? Why? And the general just says, it's the way I am, which, I, again, I liked. I thought was a great, great line. But that, you know, none of that ever happens. Harry, down, he's down in the engine room, and he saves the day. It turns out that the Shadow, he anticipated that something like this might, might happen, so he sent Harry down there just as a fallback. So with nothing left to lose, the General turns his weapon on Margot Lane and simply pulls the trigger. But, of course, he's conveniently out of bullets. So he flees to the closest lifeboat, intent on escaping the mocking, ever-present laughter of the Shadow. And he actually makes it, too. He makes it all the way down the falls and into the open sea and into the little lifeboat where the shadow is waiting for him. The weed of crime bears bitter fruit, says the shadow. Crime does not pay. And he says the shadow knows just as Sodom lunges and takes them both overboard. So for five long, tension-fraught minutes, 
Margot and Harry just peer over the railing and they're looking for any sign of their master. And finally, it's Harry that just simply says, you know, they went in near the propellers. They might have been caught. But then Margot says, Harry, listen. And in the final panel of the book, we see that insane laugh again, this time trailing in the wake of the Neptune and floating on the black water are the words, the shadow never fails. And, you know, despite everything I felt going into this issue and despite some art that is wonky and inconsistent and not really my cup of tea, I dug the hell out of this issue. I liked it a whole lot. I thought it was really, really good stuff. I think a lot of it, in all honesty, was the story itself. I think it transcended the art. But at the same rate, there are some moments in this that uh, I really enjoyed Frank Robbins' art. His work on the shadow himself, the character of the shadow is pretty much spot on. It's it's some of the other people in the book that look really odd. Trevnitz just looks freakish to me. He looks like a deformed Ben Grimm or something. Um, the captain of the uh, of the Neptune that gets shot by Sodom. He looks like a like an ape man wearing a captain's jacket or something. <laughs> some of the some of the art is really really wonky, but then when it works. It works really well. The scene with the two ships coming up alongside each other in this big storm and there's lightning bolts all over the place and everything looks really good. The final battle when when the shadow gets aboard the Neptune and he's just mercilessly gunning down all the bad guys is really good. And the way Springer makes the shadows laugh surround bad guys to where they're all looking in different directions and you can see the panic on their faces. That's really good. I like that a lot because I've always liked that element of the shadow. You know, that I think that's one of the things that really differentiates him from say Batman or the Punisher is that he's not just this silent grim Avenger is that he would laugh, he would taunt them, and he would scare the piss out of them with that laugh. I think that was one of his greatest weapons, was that sinister laugh that he had that would just, you know, put the fear of God into his enemies. And uh, there's a great, great panel at the bottom of page, is this 15 or 18? It's page 15, where the laugh is all around these three armed thugs and each one of them is looking in a different direction and each one of them has a different expression of just stark terror on their face and i love it it's really really dynamic and uh i i thoroughly enjoyed this i really did so now i'm i'm curious to dig out the other unread issues that i have from the rest of this run and and read them whether they're whether they're colluda or whether they're uh uh robins i, I really want to check this out now and uh, if if this, you know, I, I'm I'm actually I'm curious to to really test myself with something like say Invaders, which I've wanted to read for years, but I just never have because I didn't think I could make it past the art. Now I want to see: do I really, you know, do I like this art enough to go on to that, or was it the story in this? Was it the writing that made me overcome the art, or am I kind of over my my Frank Robbins prejudice enough to to see? 
around some of the the shortcomings of it or something like that. So I don't know. I might have to check that out at some point. But regardless, this particular issue, I really dug. Um, when it comes to the Frank Robbins art, it's really going to be Roy Thomas's writing that's going to keep you <laughs> sticking with the Invaders. And I'm not saying that to to insult the man, even though I kind of did earlier on. I just don't. I've never really cared for his style. I think it's a you know Roy Thomas swears by it. You hear read interviews with Roy Thomas, and he just goes up and down talking about what a great artist Frank Robbins was. And I just apparently all the writers that he worked with really really loved him, and he also did a lot of writing on his own. Yeah, writing wise, he's great. He yeah. did a lot of he wrote a lot of great Batman stories. I yeah. just it's it's just you know, and then you have to kind of suffer through when he does like that Man Bat story that was reprinted in the greatest Batman stories ever told, which is my least favorite story in that book. Um, but for I, you know, he he understood that character, but it's just I I just didn't care for it. They credit him with bringing Batman back to the. Uh... You know, the grim and gritty a little bit before what Denny O'Neill did. Hmm. You know, when he had gotten a little silly for the TV series. Uh, I remember Frank Robbins' art when it was coming out in The Invaders, in Captain America, uh, Ghost Rider, Daredevil. And I remember it fondly. And the thing is, like, I keep I keep trying to ask myself, is it? Do I remember it fondly because I really like it, or do I remember it fondly just because of nostalgia? And I was trying to come up with why do I like it, and I actually found a quote on Comic Vine, which kind of sums it up totally for me. Uh, it said, "Robin's art is for many an acquired taste." Because he worked quickly, his work can leave a first impression of being undisciplined. The figures, while often graceful, can be at other times oddly disordered and weightless, like also would marionettes. But the storytelling power of the drawing soon overcomes our objections. The rich, convincing, tangible atmosphere created by the dashingly executed backgrounds, keenly alive, well-individuated characters... His hazard Batman and shadow work in particular show masterful composition, achieving variety and depth within the confines of limited space. His work is avidly collected largely by artists. And I thought that kind of summed it up. Like that's, you know, the the whole thing about them uh, appearing weightless, it really is, when he shows a fight scene, it does appear that the people are weightless in the... uh, in the drawing. What what I come back to with him is his style really is a callback to like the Golden Age comics. Yes. When some of them were actually difficult to read because of the artwork, but when you kind of just dove into that style, you know, then then it became enjoyable. And that's why I thought it actually went very, very well with the Invaders, uh, since that was a, you know, Golden Age flashback type storyline. I thought it also lent itself well to horror type stories, like he did in Ghost Rider. Uh, he did some of the uh, Morbius issues in, uh, I think, Adventures into Fear. Hmm. Uh, and and I thought it, I thought his artwork went well with that. So I look back on him and I remember him fondly. Whether it's because of an actual quality of the art or it's nostalgia, I still can't say 100. percent But I do like it. 
Well, I mean, there's there's something to be said for that nostalgia factor, too. I mean, because I know that I give a big old wide pass to Carmine Infantino's work on Star Wars that other people look at and just go, Bleh, you know, but to me, that's the stuff I grew up on. So, you know, I, I can't be objective about it. So I, I wonder if part of the, the thing with this, see, I, I look at Robin's work on something like, say, Captain America or Batman, and I just can't stand it. But see, I have a very firm image in my mind of what those characters look like, and I expect them to look like, you know, with Batman, for an example, I expect him to look like Jim Apparel or Neil Adams. And when he doesn't, then it's just, you know, the aesthetic doesn't work for me. And I, I look at Frank Robbins' Batman, and I can't help but see, like, Alex Toth, who I could never stand. And that sort of thing. So it, it's not really the fault of the artist. It's just it, it's not pleasing to my eye because I already have a preset idea in my mind of what that character should look like. Whereas the shadow, I really don't. You know, I mean, there's not really a definitive shadow artist. I mean, you could make an argument for, like, say, Howard Chaikin, which was kind of my gateway into the shadow. But even there, I mean, his his art style isn't really that far from robbins so and again you know my the shadow was the was the one thing in the actual issue i never had a problem with there's not a a panel in this with the actual shadow character that i looked at and thought oh that just doesn't look right i like them all i think the shadow looks the best of any character in the book it's just some of the other characters that look a little weird and wonky to me but the shadow himself looks great so I don't know, but I mean, you know, take the same artist and, you know, that's why I'm curious to check out something like, say, Invaders or something. Will I feel the same way about it? Because I do most definitely have my own ideas of what Captain America should look like. He should look like Mike Zek draws him, you know, so will I like that stuff, you know, and I don't I don't know. I'd be I'd be curious now to to go back and, and try once more to to, you know, give Invaders a second chance, because whenever I've tried to read that title. Uh, I just, I, I couldn't, I literally could not get past the artwork in it. It just, something about it just put me off. One thing I could say about Robin's work, and this could come back a little to be a problem with somebody like Captain America or even Batman, is uh, nobody in his books looks like a bodybuilder. Right. They all look like just regular people you'd see on the street, including the superheroes, as far as their builds. And... You know, to some extent, that's more realistic. But another, you know, you you do expect kind of a an idealized vision of your superheroes, right? So that's something you kind of have to accustom to yourself to. You're not going to see the, you know, you're not going to see the uh, the Rob Liefeld, you know, huge chested Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all I got on this. I, I will throw out a quick plug for uh, anyone who hasn't checked out the current uh, Shadow series coming out by Dynamite. It is great, great stuff. Are, are either of you guys reading that? I haven't. I been. just found out about it from our good friend Andy Leyland. It's, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to I, I saw issue four at the comic shop, so I'll just have to wait till the trade. It's fantastic. Because I like the Shadow quite a bit. I'm not overly familiar with him, and somewhere in my collection... Uh, I have a um, hard co- that hardcover of the O'Neill Kaluta stuff that was released in the '80s that I got for fifty cents. Actually, yeah, um, got that really cheap. Um, 
and, I, and I'm going to crack that open one day. But the Shadow is he's, he's just a great character. So and, yeah, he and is. Talked, and we've talked about how much how awesome the movie was. So I think that has a lot to do with my love of the character as well. Well, I know eventually I want to. We want to do that where we want to do our our you know our episode about the movie itself. And uh, quite some time ago, probably years at this point. Will Sanchez and I had talked about uh, doing coverage of the the Howard Chaykin miniseries that was kind of my introduction to the character. So it's hopefully one day that'll still that. happen. Yeah, because uh, I, I love that miniseries. It's fantastic. But that's all I got. All right, so you want to swing over to the indie? Absolutely. Let's swing over to the indie. All right, for mine, I went more recent than I think I've ever gone in any of the books that I've picked so far since I've been <laughs> on the show. I went to June of 1993 for Prime Number 1. It oh, has a wow. cover price of $1.95. Uh, the cover has a poster-type drawing of a hugely muscular Prime in a stereotypical heroic stance with his left hand in the air and his index finger up uh, as a symbol of Number 1. Uh, the credits are that the that Prime was created by Bob Jacob, Rod Jones, and Len Strezulski. Strezulski? Sorry. Uh, the <laughs> I, story always, is, I always thought it was Strezulski. I'm not sure. I'm sure it's pronounced differently than the letters fall. <laughs> uh, names like that often are. Uh, so I'm getting it totally wrong. And it's written by George Jones and Len uh, it's drawn by Norm Keith Brayfogle, colors by Paul Mounts, and letters by Tim Elrid. It's edited by Chris Um. We open with Prime holding a man by his shirt. He identifies himself as Prime and calls the man a pervert. It says that he's going to make him pay. Prime says that he knows what the man, who he calls Coach Meyer, did to these girls. And then we see that we're in a junior high school gym and that there are some young girls in the background. The scene is being narrated by the coach slash gym teacher who says that Prime didn't seem to know his own strength. Prime says to the coach that he saw him touching those girls, uh, which we know is true based on the girl's reaction when he says that. Uh, The coach notices that Prime kind of flinches at one point when he moves towards him, and he takes it as a sign of weakness. In response, he kicks Prime in the stomach, and in doing so, he snaps his own ankle. He uh, denies touching anyone, and Prime grabs him by the arm, yelling at him that he has to admit what he did. And when he does that, he snaps his left arm at the elbow, which causes a very nasty-looking compound fracture. This frightens the girls that he's trying to protect, and they kind of run away from him. From that scene, we cut to the coach with his arm and leg in casts, and he's offering some sort of testimony about what happened. He's in a chair where he's kind of being interrogated, but he seems kind of laid back about it. Uh, When he's finished, he asks when he gets his money, and he's told to go see the receptionist. At that point, we don't see who's questioning him, and after he leaves, we just hear one person say that they can't believe that they're paying that sleazebag, and the other explains that as the coach was testifying, he was being bombarded with radiation, which will eliminate his sexual urges or sex of any kind. Another witness enters the room after the coach leaves and is told to sit down. He's dressed in kind of a stereotypical pimp outfit with knee-high boots, uh, numerous gold chains, and kind of a Caribbean hat. Uh, Prime apparently busted up his drug house, 
where he came crashing through the roof and yelled, no more crack and no more drugs. The people in the house opened fire on him, and the bullets seemed to penetrate, causing Prime to ooze some sort of liquid. And uh, he then slammed his hands together, causing a shockwave. And the guy who's testifying grabbed a flamethrower, which didn't seem to slow Prime down at all. Prime started to spin and caused the whole house to come down. The man mentions that he has a piece of the ooze that came from Prime, and he's wearing it in a vial on one of the chains in his, on his neck. The people who were questioning him agreed to pay $5,000 for it, at which point he tries to increase the price to $10,000. Uh, apparently they take some umbrage with this because some restraining straps come out around him and pull him into the seat and he's electrocuted. The questioner then steps forward and takes the vial from him and mentions that he was he's working for the government. We then cut to some sort of expositional scene where there's a television special report on a show called Ultra Humans and they're, just, they're talking of hard, hard case and prototype who were two other heroes that Malibu was... Uh, publishing at this time, but I'm not very familiar with them. Uh, the news report is presenting them in a negative way. Then they start to talk about Prime, and they discuss his appearance at the junior high school. We see the government agent from earlier, and he's watching it on TV with another man, and they say that they need to move quickly now. The report indicates that Prime has been sighted entering Somalia, and the viewer says that he's 10,000, oh, excuse me, that the man who's viewing it the, who was earlier questioning the people, says the Prime is 10,000 miles from home, and he concludes he doesn't know and he hasn't guessed. Then we cut to Prime flying into an area where there are two rows of stopped trucks of uh, UN supplies that can't go forward because some terrorists are stopping them. He yells at them to follow him because the terrorists can't do anything to stop him. And at that moment, the terrorists open fire on him. The bullets aren't hurting him, and we see him catch a hand grenade, which he lets explode and laughs. He calls out to the U.N. soldiers, but at that moment he sees that his body seems to be losing cohesion, and he flies away quickly before the soldiers even have a chance to thank him. We see Prime struggling as he flies along, and he's saying to himself, just a little further. He comes crashing through a window, and as he comes to the ground inside this building, we see that his body is just melting away, and we see a face inside of his chest cavity. The person who's within struggles and kind of bursts out, and he's on all fours vomiting. And the next, the word balloon promises that next issue, inside Prime. So I guess we're going to get an explanation as to exactly what's going on there, because they leave it up as a mystery. And that's the end of issue one. Now, I was not familiar with Malibu at the time this was coming out. This was right around the time when I was just getting back into collecting after I had uh, after I had stopped for a number of years, but Malibu kind of went under my radar at that point, and I learned about them when they were acquired by Marvel, which is probably I don't know maybe around the same time as that Heroes Reborn stuff was coming out. Uh, my understanding is Marvel acquired them because they had a coloring system that was superior to what Marvel had, and they didn't want to yep. pay for the rights of it for it. So they just bought the whole company rather than do that. Hmm. Uh, I, as I understand it, and again, I haven't read many of these issues, but Prime is apparently a relatively young boy. He's a student at that junior high school, 
and I don't know exactly how he gets the power, but it's basically his own imagination that creates that prime body around him. Uh, which kind of gives me kind of a Shazam thought for it. It's funny you should say that because um, I have av- absolutely no experience with this character at all. I'd heard of him, and that was simply it. I'd never read anything of him or what. But just based on that panel, again, with no damn page. Oh, wait, there is a page number. Page four. That panel where the coach kicks at him and he flinches back, which is kind of a, a funny thing for him to do. And the coach in the narration even comments on it. He says, when, I, uh, when he flinched, I thought maybe I'd found his weak spot. But that's a great pose that, that Prime has right there where he looks like a scared little kid for just a moment. I thought... You know, and it's weird. I'm not trying to... to, to <laughs> usually I'm really bad at, like, playing detective in comics, but I, I was just... I was really proud of myself that my first thought was, he's a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a kid. He's 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 got, like, the whole Billy Batson thing working. And when you get to the end of the issue, and he's essentially, like, you know, the, the day Billy became Superman was kind of the way I, I looked at this story. I thought, okay, you know, because up to that point, I wasn't really feeling it. I was kind of like, what what the hell is this? <laughs> but then when I when you get to the end of the story, and it really was what I suspected from that panel, a little kid playing Superman, I thought, okay, that's enough of a hook that I'm, I'm kind of interested now. And I can see why this was a was a popular thing for a time. Because that's actually a really interesting idea. But what, what has that Shazam feeling, which is more of a you know younger storyline or a, a story that's geared more towards younger readers? Uh, obviously, this one is much much more serious when you start dealing with a coach who's touching young girls in an improper way right. and a crack house. Mm-hmm. So you know it, it's clearly not you know intended for you know eight year olds to be reading it. Right. Uh, I, it's and and I don't think other than the and I think what what you pointed out is is absolutely correct that that was a clue to the fact that it's a young kid in there. But I think in the artwork they're really not trying to give it away just yet, because when you see him at the end of the story, when he you know when he comes in and his body is melting away, uh, you can't really tell that it's a kid. The only panel where it looks to me to be a kid that it stands out that way is in the second to last page, the first panel, you know, as he's kind of clawing at the body around him, it looks like a young kid's face. Right. Other than that, other than that, I, you know, even at the very end, after he comes out and he's vomiting, uh, I can't tell that that's a kid or an adult. I can't tell what it is in that shot. Maybe not. Yeah. See the, the other, up until the point, the very last page where he's heaving, it looks like a kid. It looks like a, you know, like a really young kid to me, like, you know, 10, 12 years old, that last panel actually looks like it might not be a kid so much as like, you know, the 98 pound weakling or something like that. But regardless, I thought that that was a really interesting idea. And it was just neat to get to the, to the end of the story and be kind of like, ah, I thought so. Because it was the combination of that one panel where he flinches back, but then also he, he's taking a very, um, naive and kid approach to all of these problems. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than being, you know, because he, 
my my first impression and what I you know honestly w- without a- having ever read you know any prime my impression was that he was superman in another universe you know he was just yet, yet another superman analog and so when I first started into this story and it's him taking this this very uh you know very simplistic approach to you know the 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 whole uh, pervert thing at the beginning and then just charging into the into the crack house and then charging into a war zone I thought okay I I don't like th- I don't like this approach to you know Superman being this stupid that you know Superman knows that yes the the real world has problems he can't just charge in and solve everything because there's there's bigger factors at play that's why he doesn't just go in and you know, take all the weapons out of the hood or something, or all the drugs out of the hood, because, you know, they'd be, you know, there were stories where he tried things like that, and the very next day, the problem was right back again. Yeah. So, but I'm not sure at what point it clicked in this story to me, but at some point, it clicked that, okay, he's, I think this is a kid. I, you know, there was just something that, that kept making me think, you know, because obviously he was new at what he was doing because things that happened surprise him. So obviously, you know, he hadn't been around long. He wasn't uh, an established hero. But it was really that. I think it was actually when he was battling the the guys in the war zone is where it hit me that. Or maybe it was when, when he looks down at himself and realizes that he's all busted up. But there was at some point in this where I really started to think that that, that was going to be the, the hook with this was that he was uh, he was either a kid or he was like, you know, some nerdy dweeby guy that somehow found the ability to become, you know, this ridiculously over muscled Superman type and then just thought he would go out and just, you know, play hero. Which ultimately ends up making sense to the over muscular type because apparently the body that formed around this kid is based upon his own desire and his own image as to what it should be. So, right. you know, it's, it's, you know, if he's, he's a middle school kid, so he's got to be, you know, between 11 and 13. And I'm sure at that age, that's exactly what, you know, that, that's the ideal look as far as, you, you know, at that age, that's, you wouldn't want anything more than that. Uh, and, and like you say, he, he takes a naive approach to stuff, which is, you know, it's. I think it's all really more or less meant to be clues that he's a kid, but I don't think they want you to right. know for a fact yet. Uh, and I think it's really well written, and in in that, yeah, there's there's a lot that goes on, but when you finish that last page, I think it makes you want to get the next issue and read it. It it, you know. it does because that that last page to me was justification for all of the feelings I had going into the very beginning of the book because that very first page, um. I take it back, not the very first page, the next page, which is the two-page spread of him. He's got the coach by the shirt, and he's pulling back to just, it looks like he's just going to punch his head off. And he said, admit it, Coach Meyer, I know what you did. I looked at that, and I'm just shaking my head going, Norm, 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 what happened to you, dude? This sucks. Because this guy's just freakishly huge. But... When you get to the end, you kind of realize, you know, and, and of course, it's, I, I know this is just me as, you know, the, the jaded comic book reader having read a zillion comics. 
I kind of figured this is what was going on is that this this was this guy he somehow he has the ability to make himself a freakishly ridiculously you know overmuscled character you know that that's just the assumption I'm I'm leaping to with this so then all of a sudden it worked then all of a sudden it clicks with me and then like I say the the other things that happen in the story with him being kind of stupid and naive in in his approach to different problems and and things it all suddenly it all makes sense and yeah I. I I got to the end of this and I was like, hmm, I wonder where this whole thing went, you know? There's a, uh, I've never read just about all of the Ultraverse, unfortunately, which is which is a shame because I think the Ultraverse, as an idea of being kind of the anti-image, you know, a, a comic company founded by writers instead of artists, right? Which which was the big thing about it, um. You know, and, and the writers they got, like Gerard Jones. Gerard Jones is a fantastic writer, and Lynn Straczynski and um, and uh, James Robinson worked there. Uh, I know. I'm trying to think if it was that or Bravera, where Howard Chaykin uh, did some work as well. But Prime was always the character that when I would like see things in Wizard that he would be like the, oh, that's kind of interesting. And I remember it being described as like, you know, the Billy Bats and Captain Marvel thing, which was also cool. But there's like later stories where his look completely changes and he gets like the Lorenzo Lamas long hair and a headband and he's kind of <laughs> darker and more rugged. And I'm, and when I saw that, I thought that was hilarious. Not like, like oh, that, that's funny looking, let's make fun of it, but more of, that's what a kid would do. A kid in right. the 90s that wanted to be a badass would make himself look like that. And right. I always thought that was just an awesome idea. Yeah, I agree. And uh, it's a shame that these characters, and I, I there's a lot of Ultraverse that I haven't read as well, but uh, you know, I know Prime is a pretty solid character. I understand Rune is a good character. Uh, it's a shame that they're just kind of all shelved and they're basically not going to be taken off that shelf because... Uh, apparently the contracts that these writers have would pay a little bit too much in royalties uh, for Marvel to consider it worth their while to to publish new stories or even reprint the old ones. So they bought them all and then they just stuck them on a shelf? Well, they, they, yeah, didn't, they didn't stick them on the shelf immediately. They did uh, quite a few crossovers. Uh, their version of the Avengers, I think, was the Ultras. And right. they actually had uh, Black Knight crossover and become a member of that team. And then they had their own, another group called the Exiles, and Juggernaut was actually on that team. And they did a bunch of crossover stories. They did Rune Silver Surfer. Uh, I, I can't think of off the top of my head, but they did a bunch of others. I think they might have done Hulk Prime. And... Uh, so they gave it a little yeah. bit of a run, which I get the feeling wasn't so much because they were trying to give it, it a, a, a tryout, but maybe it might have been part of the, uh, the deal when they purchased the company that they had to keep it going for a certain amount of time or until the sales got to a certain level or whatever. Uh, I, I don't think they were being you know just nice by publishing these things. See, it's funny because I remember these things when they were coming out. I remember seeing like the universe crossover things going on and different one shots and stuff. And I remember seeing you know all the Ultraverse stuff that would be advertised at the back of different comics, you know, as the hot new thing, you know, the the hot deal or whatever. But I, I just I missed the entire thing. 
And it's funny, I was think, trying to think about, you know, I was thinking about this not long ago, trying to pin down, you know, how exactly did I miss so many of the, the phenoms that happened in the 90s with all these other companies, you know, the whole image thing and all that. And a lot of it is just, you know, where I was in my life at the time. And like when this stuff was coming out, I, you know, I know exactly where I was and what was going on and kind of, you know, at, at that particular point comics were kind of the last thing on my mind so i was getting like my regular books which were down to just a handful at the time it was like superman and thor and a couple other things and that was about it so i kind of vaguely remember these books being on the stands but never never gave a peek at any of them and this was a lot of fun for me because i you know for one thing i'm a big norm brayfogel fan so even though at the beginning of the book i started off going wow this sucks by the end of it, I was really digging it because I, then I kind of I started to get the idea of what they were going for. But if, you know, my first impression of Prime was like, whoa, what happened to Norm Brayfogel? All of a sudden he can't draw, you know, but now I get it and I, I, I really dig it. But also just, you know, this is the first time I think where one of these 90s phenom books that came out, you know, that I completely missed at the time where I've picked it up and I've read it and I've really enjoyed it and been like, okay, well now I see what the big deal was where, you know, I think up till now, every time I've ever read something from one of those indie companies, you know, from some nineties book or whatever, I pick it up and I read it. And and I think invariably I've always been like, wow, people bought this shit. You know, people liked this, you know, I was like, you know, and I'm not trying to be a hater. It's just, honestly, that's, I think that's been my reaction. Most every time has been just like, wow. You know, well, I, th- I think there was, there was kind of a, a, a tendency. Like when image first started, it was all the big names that, mm-hmm. that put up the company and, and they, they quickly created an, uh, an impression and, and the books hit the stand and they were, you know, selling like hotcakes. But I think all of a sudden the, with that came this idea that independent books are cool. And all of a sudden everybody was throwing out independent books and they weren't necessarily putting out the quality books. There was right. just a huge number of them coming out and some of them were just total crap. And uh, but you know a lot of them were selling despite that, and then you know especially with the speculators market that was out there at that time, you know they'd see a new number one coming out from a new company and they think okay this is going to be the next big thing, so the sales on the book would be kind of you know uh, they'd they'd make they'd give you the wrong impression, right, and and then they'd keep publishing it and again you know no quality to it though. I mean, that, that's, I don't want to paint it with too broad a brush because there was a lot of quality stuff, but there was also a lot of crap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good choice, though. I, I enjoyed this quite a bit. I didn't expect to. I honestly did not. I, 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 you know, even with it being Norm Brayfogel, I was like, eh, it's, you know, it's one of those crappy independ- you know, independent 90s books. It's going to suck. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 I wish I like I- it. I wish I could have read it, but I thought I had it, but turns out, no. It turns out the only Ultraverse book that I ever have, like, a significant run of is Nightman. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. So, that's That makes me think of uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> Do you ever watch that show? No. no. One one of the characters has a play he wrote, uh, and you know, it's called I think it's called The Nightman, and he sings a song where it's Nightman, Enemy of the Day Man. 
It's really, really <laughs> stupid. But it's funny because it's so stupid. <sighs> well, is that it for this time, gentlemen? I think so. All right. It's Next time, fun. NFL, NFL Super, Super Pro. <laughs> 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 Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 